Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I do want to thank all of those who've been praying for my voice. We'll see how long it lasts. I have wonderful, lovely, cute little Petri dishes that live in my house that have shared wonderful little germs with me. And uh, so we'll see, we'll see how, how long my voice lasts. And uh, thank you so much for those who are praying. Uh, I do want to say, for those who are watching on the live stream, you don't need to adjust your television. This really is my voice. And so um, we'll do our best and we'll, we'll try to get through this. But I'm incredibly burdened for uh, the message tonight. I told Pastor that I'm ready to go, but I hope that my voice will be able to stay with me. Um, and I've uh, been praying about this message, and so I trust it will be a blessing. You are in Colossians chapter 2. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to what would be considered his grandchildren in the faith. And in the book, he declares the supremacy of Christ and the necessary ramifications of the gospel. Colossians were mired in great opposition with uh, different philosophies and false teachers infiltrating the church and trying to woo the believers away from the gospel. And so Paul picks up his pen and he writes to them in the book of Colossians. So I trust it will be a blessing as we are once again in Colossians chapter 2. 4,500. 4,500, that is the number of churches that closed their doors in our country last year. Over that same time, around 20,000 pastors left the ministry. And of those who remained in the pastorate, 50% say that they would leave the ministry if they had another way of making a living. Also, for the first time in our nation's history, the number of professing Christians has slipped below 50%. That means that we are now more secular than we have ever been in America. These statistics indicate that the churches in our country are struggling. We have struggles and we have opposition from without, as sinful men would love nothing more than to snuff out the church's gospel mission. Now, this is difficult, but it is expected, right? After all, Christ told us we would be hated simply because we name his name. But external opposition is not all that the church is facing. We have great opposition from within the church as well. Selfishness, worldliness are actively weakening the church's membership, and it's belittling the testimonies and the impact of the church on the watching world. Now, I understand this doesn't paint a pretty picture, does it? And perhaps when you hear these statistics, it may make you nervous. It may make you a little bit scared or maybe even a little bit depressed. But why do I bring these up? I bring these statistics and realities to our attention for one reason, and that is to increase our burden for the church. Yes, the universal church in our land, but more specifically, the burden for my local church, for your local church, for Grace Baptist Church. See, I must see and recognize that Grace Baptist Church either is facing or will soon face the conflicts and the opposition that I laid out, that I have mentioned. The question is, how should we respond as a congregation? How should we respond to this opposition? 
to these difficulties? And this was the question the Apostle Paul answers in our text for the evening. He makes it clear that there were some practical things that he was doing to navigate these oppositions himself. And he becomes our example of how we ought to think and act within our church. When you come to Grace Baptist Church and you park in this parking lot and you walk into this building, what is your mindset? What is your goal when walking in? I think some of us do, and, and I live next door, and I'm a pastor, and I'm here all week, and sometimes I miss the reality that the devil would love nothing more than to close the doors of this place, to silence the ministry that happens in the pulpit, but also in the pews and amongst you, God's people. And Paul picks up his pen, as I mentioned before, and he deals with some of these issues And he walks us through how we ought to think and how we ought to act. Perhaps you are burdened this evening. Perhaps you are weighed down, but you don't know what to do with your burden. I think our text will be helpful. Maybe you're still kind of a little bit, well, you know, it's not that bad. Well, I do want us to wake up and have this burden that we have on our hearts and then follow what God's directive is on what the burden you should have for your church, for Grace Baptist Church. We have a roadmap to follow, and so chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, will help us to navigate the times that we live and help us understand that since the spiritual opposition is great, we must respond to it as a group of believers, and we must respond to it individually as well as corporately. And we pick up in our text for the evening, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I would that you know or knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. We'll stop there, and we need to understand first off that because spiritual opposition is real, you must be burdened for your church. Again, verse 1, Paul was in great conflict for them. That word conflict has the idea of external and internal struggle. He was in angst. We could go to, we could go to 2 Corinthians and look at Paul's testimony that he had a burden upon him of the churches that he ministered. Again, I mentioned he had never been to Colossae. But he had someone that he had discipled in Christ, and that person went and started the book, or started the ministry in Colossae. And so he sat down and he wrote again to his his grandchildren in the faith, and he he was in great conflict for them. What does that mean? That means that he was actively aware and in the fight for them every moment of the day. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, it says we, verse 3, it says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying sometimes for you. No, that's not what it says. Praying always for you. And why? Well, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, as soon as he heard, he started praying. And he got active, and he was seeking to figure out and, and be understanding of what was taking place. And he wanted to be in the fight for them and with them. 
It's interesting, he says in our verse 1 of our text that there have been, uh, at the end, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Again, Paul never met these people, but he was conscious of their struggles, and he was burdened for them. When you walk out of this auditorium and you go back to the world and the spheres of influence that we have, what are your thoughts towards one another here at Grace Baptist Church? Now, we would love to be able to spend every waking moment with each other, and I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but at the same time, when you don't see each other face-to-face, what is your heart? Are you burdened for each other? Are you actively seeking to know and to help and to, to, to guide and understand the struggles of those within the congregation here? Paul was active, and he was in great opposition. He understood it. He was in great struggle because of it, and he wanted them to know that he was burdened for them. So we must be burdened. But we ask, what are the burdens? Because like I said, you may sit back and say, I don't know what to do about our culture. I don't know what to do about my family. I don't know what to do about my grandchildren. I don't know what to do about my nieces and nephews. I don't know what seems to be the deal, or even if I do know what the deal is, I don't know how to fix it. What should we be about? And Paul lays out what his burden for the Colossian church is that I believe should be the burden of every single one of us when we come to this place. He starts off and he says in verse 2 that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right there we have a roadmap of what we are to be burdened for for our church. And he starts off and he says we need to be burdened that our church is comforted. Comforted. To me that caught me off guard. Thinking about who the Apostle Paul was, and well, I guess he is still the Apostle Paul in heaven, but when you think about his personality, you don't think necessarily about comfort, at least I don't. But that's what Paul is thinking and praying for this group of believers. The word is parakaleo, it is calling alongside of, it is encouraging, it is building one another up. I often, with the teens, we walk through... And I'm just going to give you a quick little synopsis why we're at the, at the youth group here at Grace. We're called Project Delta, and Delta is a triangle. And on each end of the triangle, at the beginning of the school year, we go through and I preach what the three points of the triangle are. And those three points coincide with what we are here at Grace Baptist Church. There's three E's that we are about. We are about edifying the saints. We are about evangelizing the lost and, most importantly, exalting Christ. So evangelize, edify, and exalt. And as we look at this idea of exalting, one of the things that I say often to our teens is we must build one another up. If this is a place where the Holy Spirit is ruling and reigning and ministering, this should be a place where people can come, where they are, they are edified, they are built up in the faith. Oh yes, sometimes that might look like a rebuke at some, time, at some points. It may look like correction at other points. It may look like a loving arm around someone at other times. But it is edifying. It is building one another up. And he says, 
Colossians, I am praying and I am burdened that your church is comforted. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Colossians states that this comfort is an encouragement that touches the deepest part of our being and that affects every section of our person. Every part. That means the spiritual for sure. But that also means the physical. Are we quick to show up? Are we quick to be active in our burdens to comfort others? So be burdened that your church is comforted. But secondly, be burdened that your church is unified. Okay, he says, verse 2, that you might be comforted. And then being knit together, being knit together. Now this is... When we think about unity, you might say, oh, of course, the pastoral staff, of course, would love for Pastor Nate to say, be unified, be unified. But let me just say, this is unified unity in something. This is not just unity like, hey, toe the company line or get in line with what we are about here at Grace Baptist Church. What this is, is this is unity in one particular arena. This is unity, as the text says, in love. This unity is motivated by love for your fellow believer. Our culture doesn't really know what love is. Sometimes we think of, they think love is a feeling. Love is a context. Love changes on a whim. But what is true love? True love is doing what is best for the loved person. It is, it is sacrificial. It is not self-centered. And again, we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at all of the different uh, attributes of what true love is. We don't have time for that. But what Paul is saying here is, I desire that you are unified in love. Beloved, this is the hallmark of Christian life. Love is the hallmark. In fact, John 13, verse 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Our love does what is best for the loved one. Again, this is not selfish unity. It's not my way or the highway. This is servant-minded unity. This is doing what is best for someone else. And this is why the psalmist states in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When we try to outdo one another in love, if I try to do what is best for you and you try to do what is best for me and we try to race each other to accomplish that goal, can you imagine what would take place in this congregation? And we seek to encourage one another and we seek to be unified by love. Now there's a group of people here at Grace Baptist Church that I have enjoyed watching since I've come here as a youth pastor. It is the widow's group, and I'm sure they're going to be a little bit mortified that I would say something from the pulpit. But as I've watched these ladies minister to those who have lost their husbands, calling one another, showing up when people need things, taking time to go out to, to dinners and lunches together, I've sat back and I've watched and I've marveled and I've thought, that's what I want to do. That's what I think we should be about. That we are unified in love, encouraging and comforting one another. 
So we should be burdened that, we are, that our church is comforted, that we should be burdened that our, we are unified in love. And then lastly, that we should be burdened that our church is Christ-like. It always goes back to Christ. That's the foundation. And you look, you look at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. It says, And unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is Paul saying? He's basically saying, I am burdened that you know Christ, that you pursue your, you, you see the value you see the riches of understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Are you burdened that the people in the pews at your church know Jesus and know him intimately and not just mentally, but also heart knowledge and an experiential knowledge? In order for that to happen, you know what that takes? It takes you having conversations. It takes you talking and saying, how are you doing? How's your devotion life? How's your Bible reading? Are you behind? Are you ahead? What you learning? Knowing Christ, it is the most important pursuit. Why? Because that's what we were created for. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1 in Colossians. He's talking about Jesus, and he says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, and here it is, all things were created for him. That means if we are going to function our best as human beings, we must be living for him. That's why we were created. That's why we are fashioned. That's why you have a breath. It is to glorify and magnify our Savior. And we, as believers, have the privilege of getting to know him on a personal level. So yes, we should know Christ. But then look at verse 3. In whom, so in Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because once we begin to know who Jesus is, guess what happens? This amazing thing happens in our life. We start acting more like him. And when we start acting more like him, we are now considered wise. Because in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Have you ever wondered what to do in a certain circumstance? Have you cried out to God for wisdom? Well, the way to get that, first and foremost, is to know Christ, to serve him, to understand what he has called us to. And Paul wants them to understand what, what Christ requires of us. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, he gives another prayer for the Colossians, and he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you again, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul is praying that we actively, and the Colossian church would actively know what Christ expects. Now, sometimes we look at the will of God and we say, Well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, that's the sovereign will of God, and we will never really know that. James makes that very clear. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's his uh, benefit. That's his um, secret, if you will. But we can know what the will of God is 
for us today by following what God has commanded in his word. I tell the teens often, if you ever wonder what God's will for your life is, then do God's will today. That means, what does God expect of a teenager? That is, that is, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. So there's commands that are very clearly laid out, and we are to follow those commands, and guess what? God will then begin to, uh, to show what Christ requires of us. And as we know him and as we serve him, it is such a privilege to be able to minister. And so we should be burdened. We should be burdened that our church is comforted, unified by love, and most importantly, Christ-like. So let me ask you, do you know, first off, what's happening at Grace? Are you connected with this ministry and the people that are here? I know I'm preaching kind of to the choir because you're here on Sunday night. Nevertheless, as I sat in my office as a pastor, I had to sit and think about this question. Do I know what's happening? And then secondly, do you care? How long has it been since you were burdened that the people here are comforted, that they are loving, that we are lovingly unified, and that most importantly, we are knowing Christ and following the wisdom that only he can offer? If you aren't burdened, can I encourage you, pray for that burden. Seek to be active in prayer. Show up, be present, be sacrificially giving of ourselves to defend and protect the church, again, from that opposition that would love to destroy. Be burdened. That's what Paul says at the very first part as he gives his testimony that I am burdened for you. But that's not enough. He also then continues, and secondly, we need to understand that because spiritual opposition is real, we must be steadfast in Christ. This is when we as individuals make and decide to be steadfast in the Lord. Look at verse 4. He's saying all of these things, and then verse 4, And this I say, I say these things, why? Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Remember, we talked about that, that opposition. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Uh, we'll stop there. We need to understand that Paul is saying, don't be sidetracked. Don't be wooed. The Colossians were facing oppositions that sounded wise. They were all the rage. Can I put it that way? And then if they didn't follow all the rage in Colossae at that time, then they were, they were treated like outsiders if they didn't join in. And what Paul calls them to do is to remain steadfast in Christ. Now he starts with the negative first. And he says, don't be beguiled. Verse 4, I say these things lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Again, that word beguile means to be swept up or tricked or swayed. Don't be tricked by enticing words. Have you ever met a person who has a silver tongue? They can turn a phrase and it's just easy for them. Maybe they smile a lot and maybe they're very welcoming and, and, and almost dashing if you were, you were thinking about their personality and they just have a presence about them. And Paul says, don't be swept up by the turn of that phrase. Don't be swept up even by the oratory skills of a false teacher. 
Some, in this case, were coming and they were sounding really good, but they were wrong. And Paul says, be discerning. For the Colossians, it was asceticism. This idea of self-denial to the extreme was the way to spiritual growth and, and, and a higher spiritual level. On top of that, it was angel worship and hyper-spiritual sensitivity. The things of this earth, oh, that, that's not really where you should spend your time. You need to get to know the forces that are out there is the mentality. The flesh and the physical, it was evil. But the spiritual, that was good. And therefore, you must pursue only the spiritual. For us, though, it could be wokeism on the left. Or yes, even fringe philosophies on the right. That sound good to us. That appeal to our contexts rather than timeless biblical truth. We must not be beguiled. Beloved, be careful as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 states, to, we are to test all things. Don't be swayed. Don't be easy pickings. Now, how do we ensure that we are not beguiled? Well, consider this. There's one immediate reason in the text, and it actually involves the person of the Apostle Paul. One immediate reason is found in verse 5. There are others who are involved besides yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, when I first started to learn how to drive, I drove a certain way. And I liked driving a certain way. And I enjoyed driving. I still enjoy driving. But I drive differently when it's just me than if I have all the ones that I love with me in the car. I'm extra careful when I know that I have car seats behind me that are full of kids. When my wife is next to me, I'm a little extra careful when I could go, but maybe I better wait. What do I, why, am I, why am I bringing this up as an illustration? Because I think sometimes we tend to think, well, you know, my walk with God is personal, but it's, you know, it's no one else's business. But... A pastor friend of mine, he said, your walk with God is personal, but it's never private. So the things that you do and your walk with Christ, it affects other people. And Paul is actually saying, he says, for though I be, verse 5, for though I be absent in the flesh, I'm not with you, but I want you to understand, I am with you in the spirit. Maybe these Colossians thought, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Paul's not even really here What's the harm in maybe just trying to investigate what this new teaching is? And Paul says, no, I am with you. I'm there in the spirit. I'm praying for you. I'm joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul says, I'm right there with you. Others are involved besides yourself. He's actively concerned and cheering them on to steadfastness and faith. Your choices rarely impact just you. Be careful who you listen to. It may impact you, but on also the people in the pews next to you. In this case, Paul is reminding them that he is trustworthy. Philosophies are not. Paul was encouraging faithfulness to Christ. These philosophies were focused on other things as their main objective. 
And so Paul says you, you, have, to, you have to be discerning. Don't be wooed. The book of Acts talks about that. Where there will be people that come in who will seek to devour you. You must be vigilant. You must be careful. You must not be beguiled. So don't be beguiled. That's one way to be steadfast in Christ. But then also, we must remain in Christ. That's verses 6 and 7. It says, And as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Christ is then the great reason for steadfastness, but can I also say Christ is the solution? What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ, so walk ye in him. Have you ever watched a person who maybe professes something but then doesn't live it? They say that they are a believer, but they don't seem to walk in, in him. They want to, similar to a sports fanatic, a sports fan, they want to say that they are part of the team, and yet they aren't really on the team. They may have the jersey and they may show up for all the games, but they're not actually on the team. And Paul says, as you have therefore received Christ, so walk ye in him. Maybe you've seen someone who is on the team, but they don't want to act like they're on the team. It's that person who says, yeah, I'm a believer, but I don't want anyone else to know it. And Paul says, if you have received Christ, you walk in him. You live every moment with him in mind as the goal. Now, it's interesting. He not only says to, for you personally to walk in him, but then he goes on to verse 7, and he gives us a little bit of what that looks like. And what's interesting about these first few uh, attributes in verse 7 is that these switch to passivity in the original language. The first one is, so walk in him. That's a command. You walk in Christ. That is active. But now when you get to verse 7, now there's a passiveness. And what happens is Christ is the one who is doing the work in you. So as you walk in Christ, what is Christ doing for you? Verse 7, he is rooting you and building you up in him. He is establishing you in the faith. And as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So first off, what does Christ do? He roots and builds us up. This is a horticultural reference. And I have the privilege this year to try to grow a garden. And we have been learning all kinds of horticultural terminology. And, and uh, it's, been, it's been great so far. It's fun to watch those little shoots coming up and cheering on little plants. But anyway, um, so you have here a horticultural a horticultural uh, reference. It is rooted. That means stability. Roots dig deep so that they give the, the plant stability. And then also grounded. That has the idea of sustenance and growth. That they don't stay dwarfed, but then they start to grow. If you walk in Christ, Christ begins to manifest these things in your life. You will be rooted and you will be grounded in him. In Christ. He begins this work. Not only that, he not only does he root and ground you, but he also establishes you in the faith. And this is a legal reference, and that means to confirm. And the more you serve Christ, 
the more you realize I belong to Christ and this is what I was made for. This is what I was made to do, to, to please him and to live for him. And I can't wait to see him that my faith might become sight. And he establishes you and he confirms you. Now in Christ, we have a confirmation that our sins are forgiven and we have a place in heaven. Not only that, what else do we get? We get the Holy Spirit as the down payment of that reality. Ephesians 1 and verse 14 talks about that, that he, the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance. Christ does that in us as we remain in him. What is our reaction? This one is active at the end here. We are to be thankful. Okay, it says, uh, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. We are expected to be thankful. What are we expected to be thankful for? Well, we're expected to be thankful for our testimony. We, we all came to Christ as Christ wooed us, drawed us, but then we also have a story of how we got saved. And we should be thankful for what the Lord has done in our life. Now, how was Paul not swayed when the, when the Colossians might have been? It was because he was consumed with Christ. He wanted to know his Savior. In fact, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. So Paul was wrapped up in remaining in Christ because he is thankful for what Christ has done in and through him. Can I say, if we acted this way as a church, this would be a church that would be hard to be swayed by philosophies, by the quick turn of a phrase, by different thoughts that were man-made. If in Christ we have all things that pertain unto life and godliness, as 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about, then we need not be swayed. There's nothing that is deficient in Christ or with Christ. Our context of Colossians even reinforces this fact in, in verse 10. It says, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You have everything you need in Jesus. You don't need all of those other things. So, then the question is, are you remaining steadfast in Jesus? Or have you been beguiled by philosophies that maybe sound good, maybe make sense in your mind, but are you remaining true to the timeless, timeless truths of the Bible? The Bible never lies. Christ never lies. That is the safe place in order to remain steadfast in Christ. So, because spiritual opposition is real, we must be burdened for our church. And then secondly, we must be steadfast in Christ. In conclusion, 59 million Americans lost money to this industry. In fact, it has become so burdensome that the U.S. government has whole departments dedicated to minimizing, tracking down, and prosecuting the wrongdoers. This action preys on human decency and exploits it for the personal benefit of those perpetuating it. It exploded uh, with the advent of the internet, but artificial intelligence may cause it to explode once again. So I'm kind of giving you a little bit of a heads up here. I'm speaking of the scams that no doubt some of you have received over email, social media, or even on your phone. Scamming others out of their hard-earned money has become a sophisticated web of deceit with 
even the uh, artificial intelligence being able to mimic voice capabilities and, and, and types. It's sophisticated. But they say the best way to combat being taken by a scam is through vigilance and knowledge of what is true of your situation. Now, admittedly, phone scammers can do a great amount of damage. But beloved, there are more dangerous oppositions that face us today. Within the spiritual realm, we face opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. In this battle, we have been given a wonderful gift to help us. It is the fellowship, the assistance, and the help of each other from other believers. And this entity is called the church. But we need to understand that because the church stands for the truth of the gospel, then churches are under great opposition. Our spiritual enemies want to silence Grace Baptist Church and its testimony in Birmingham and in the world as we support missionaries. So then, again, the question, how do we battle this? Tonight we saw that we have personal responsibilities. When you come to this place, we have to be burdened. We must be burdened for our church. We pray for this burden. We pray that the work done here matches Scripture's expectations in care, in loving unity, and most importantly, in Christ-likeness. On top of praying, we show up. We say no to our agendas, and instead, we serve others. We pursue this loving unity. We hold to truth because that is what is best for everybody. We hold to doctrinal purity because without it, we could all be led astray. We defend and we pursue the purity and wisdom of the gospel. But in addition to the burden, we must also individually remain steadfast to Christ, understanding that a strong believer makes strong churches. Now, my heart is, and I hope your heart is as well, that Grace Baptist Church will only close its doors because the Lord comes back to rapture us. If this is to be true, we must be burdened for our church, and we must be careful to be steadfast to the Savior. Beloved, let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Let us be burdened and let us be steadfast. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the promise in your word that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we look at our church and we plead and we are burdened that this church be a place where the care of the saints is, is vital and very important, where there's loving unity around the gospel and around purity of, of uh, and the truth of the gospel. And then, Lord, that we are also very Christ-like. Lord, I pray for those among us who maybe have lost that burden. Would you give us that burden again? For those who are burdened, help us to then cultivate these goals as the word has laid out for us. And then, Lord, in our individual lives, may we be steadfast in our walk with you. 
knowing you, serving you, loving you more and more each day, and drawing others to a greater knowledge of Christ. So that then, Lord, we can hear when we stand before you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, we desire that this would be a place that you would be pleased to bless because we followed your word, because we followed Christ. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.